With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we hear about the future of sustainable aviation fuel. But we start today with Brian German. West Region Sales Agronomist for AgroLiquid Abe Isaac joins us today to talk about phosphorus and the importance of getting a good balance. Phosphorus does many things. It really is the meat and potatoes of the plant field. Uh, that's what, what really gives strength and energy in long term. Uh, it's needed for helping set that crop, and it helps build the tensile strength of the of the limbs uh, that you're going through and uh, the plant has. Uh, if you get a lot of broken limbs later in the year, as you start getting to May and June, if you don't have enough phosphorus in that plant, and it's been that way for a while, uh, I'm talking about an almond tree specifically, uh, those limbs that break and they got phosphorus can be one of those key things that you need to have in there. And your and phosphate, and your phosphate may look really great in your soil test. You may go in there and have 50, 60 parts per million, but that doesn't mean that it's available. That just tells you what your total phosphorus is in that soil. So when you're in a great time to apply phosphorus, is actually starting about now and and come and coming up is we're, we're gonna start going through root flush. Almond trees specifically and then all trees they go through about they go through two major root flushes each year in the early spring and then just before they go to sleep in the fall. And that is when there are those little white hair roots come out and you just take a shovel, dig down to those roots, look at those roots, and uh, you can see, hey, I've got some white hair roots coming here. Now's a great time to put on even some calcium at the same time. That will help build that root mass, and that'll help get that phosphorus into that plant. And so that if you do it now, in May and June, when an almond tree will say, hey, I've got, I've got to balance my, my load out to what my nutrition values are. And if it starts to eject some of those almonds off of there, that phosphorus will be there. And it'll say, hey, I can carry this bigger load, and it will help with that yield increase. And so that's, that is the vital thing about phosphorus. A top USDA official says it will take more than just money to ensure the success of USDA conservation efforts. Gary Crawford has more. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is investing record amounts of money in conservation and climate change programs and projects. There are four things that we really need to, to work on as we uh, move those investments forward. Under Secretary of Agriculture Robert Bonney telling a conference in Des Moines, Iowa the other day that first on that list of four action items. We need to make sure we have the right practices, that we're being sensitive to what producers need on the ground. And so we're working hard with a team in NRCS to make sure that we've got the right opportunities, the right practices that we can help provide cost share incentive for on the ground. And that USDA is physically able to deliver those needed programs. And so... We're going to hire some new staff. We've got new resources. We're going to need to be able to uh, have some additional people to work in partnership with farmers and ranchers and forest owners to get it out there. So we're going to look at ways that we can streamline hiring and do a better job of, of staffing our offices. But staffing alone is never going to get us what we need. Bonnie says it will take more than just USDA people. And so, number three on the action list. We're looking for ways to partner with states, with conservation groups, with commodity groups, with conservation districts and others on the ground to help us implement these programs. And finally, Bonnie says the whole farm program process needs streamlining. 
we've got to do a better job of making it easier for producers to get into our conservation programs. We make it too hard, too much red tape, and so we're doing a lot of work, particularly initially through our, uh, through our conservation easement programs as well as our regional conservation partnership program to make it easier, to reduce the amount of red tape and to allow uh, landowners, partners, producers, and others to get into those programs uh, more easy and to have those, the implementation of those programs be easier. Bonnie says that is what farmers would most like to see happen, a simpler sign-up process, less red tape in these conservation programs, programs that Robert Bonnie says are about more than just conserving land and conserving water resources, more than fighting climate change. It's also about rural communities, rural economic development, and importantly, uh, rural families. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to get your news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the AgNet Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's AgNet Hour, and it is available for Android and Apple devices. This is the AgNet Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the AgNet Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. For today's National Spotlight, we go to Chuck Zimmerman to tell us about the 2024 Cattle Con, which kicks off Thursday in Orlando. I'm visiting with Mark Isley, National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Mark, first of all, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm a cow-calf producer in the southeast corner of Wyoming, and I have the distinct pleasure of serving as the current president-elect. It's uh, not that far off, but we're going to have a convention coming up uh, pretty soon, and I I love the name of it, by the way. Well, it was a theme we thought about long and hard, but uh, yeah, we're looking forward to our convention in Orlando. It's always a crowd pleaser, and folks are ready for a warm break uh, if we're into a cold winter. Well, CattleCon is a a great name for this, and looking forward to it, as always. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the the program or some of the highlights of what what's planned for this coming one, one coming up well as usual we're going to have some great entertainment we've got uh, a couple of uh, a magician and a futurist and then we'll have our regular slate of uh, presentations like uh, cattle facts and so uh, and of course educational sessions along with our a really great trade show so we're looking forward to a, a pretty good pretty successful well-attended convention well, I'm looking forward to it, and at the same time, you know, there are a lot of issues going on right now uh, that NCBA is involved in on behalf of your members. But what are some of the key ones uh, that you're dealing with? Well, the list is long and distinguished, I'm afraid, but let's just hit a few of them. Obviously, uh, endangered species, we're watching uh, the president and his agency trying to drop bears into Washington uh, with any, without any stakeholder input. We think that's completely unfounded. Uh, of course, the tax code, we want to make sure that stays good in a, in a good position for our producers so they can operate and transition their operation to the next generation if they want to. Waters of the U.S., we'll have to see how that pans out. Uh, that's just some of it. Farm bill, we want to get a good, clean farm bill. And the president's current extension, if he signs it, uh, will keep uh, folks from playing politics with it like, like a volleyball back and forth. That would be good, settle in and get some good things we want and keep some bad things out. On the farm bill uh, issue, uh, this is what, just a, a, like a one-year extension? I think it goes on for about a year. Uh, it might be nine or ten months at this point. They're, they're, it, they may be doing some of it in phases. 
to keep uh, it moving forward. I think that's what they're talking about doing with the uh, debt ceiling also. And that way it's uh, not as easy to shut down the government and disrupt those vital services like farm service agencies and some of the other agencies that really have important work to do like border security, that sort of thing. So how would you characterize things with the members of NCBA? Well, they're great members. They're very supportive. They expect results, which we try to deliver. We've had a lot of wins this year. We fought some pretty tough battles. We're not done with them. It seems like we never really are. But that's the nature of of, uh, ag production sometimes. So I I think they're happy. They'd like to see us continue this work, and and we'll try to do our best to deliver it for them and, and provide services that they might need. Visiting with Mark Isley here with NCBA, I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. Again, the 2024 Cataclon kicks off Thursday in Orlando. That's today's National Spotlight. Now, here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, the cattle industry is getting ready for USDA's release of the Cattle Inventory Report on January 31st. A major tool in predicting the direction of the cattle industry, this report is vital for producers, economists, and all those involved across the industry. USDA's Gary Crawford has more. Beef market analysts are sharpening their electronic pencils right now, getting ready for Wednesday's big USDA cattle inventory report. Agriculture Department livestock analyst Mike McConnell says that report may tell us if the cattle herd is still in contraction mode or if things are about to change. Key numbers to watch? The number of beef cows that are in the inventory, as well as the number of heifers that are being retained for replacement, that's going to give us a sense of the breeding stock that we have going into the year. Um, which has important indications for not only cattle supplies in 2024, but really the next couple of years as well. Mike says the report will give us another vital piece of information. The number of cattle outside feedlots, and this will give us an indication of really what is the available supply for future placements going into 2024, and the implications that that has for the entire supply chain and prices for feeder cattle, as well as fed cattle and wholesale beef prices. USDA only produces this cattle report twice a year, this version coming out Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In other livestock news, the American Lamb Board recently released its fiscal year 23 annual report to share programs and success stories with mandatory lamb checkoff stakeholders from last year. The American lamb industry saw many successes in 2023, including an overall increase in demand for lamb nationwide. However, this comes at a critical point when American flock numbers are declining. Many ALB programs focus on increasing demand for American lamb, but industry education and research are also at the forefront of the board's work. A few highlights you'll find in the annual report include a spotlight on sustainability within the lamb sector as consumers across the country look for sustainable food sources. American lamb is highlighted as a perfect fit. Promotional highlights feature a growing food blogger network, cooking classes, events, and retail promotions. You'll find information on culinary events sponsored or hosted by ALB to connect with chefs, consumers, and other influencers nationwide. Promotional partnerships and young leader development are on display for industry outreach initiatives. Looking ahead to 2024, the board is working on new industry workshops, promotions, educational opportunities, and research projects that are already underway. Read more about all these programs in the full annual report. In other livestock news, another look at the USDA's recent announcement of remote beef grading. Aimed at small-scale facilities, the program is intended to provide grading services at a more economically feasible cost. Jennifer Porter of the USDA Agricultural Marketing Services explains how grading services are driven by user fees and the barrier to entry it has posed for smaller facilities until now. 
it's important to note this is a user fee service. So it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So in large facilities, there's enough volume to make that economically work. However, because it's a user fee driven program, we also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight hour a day cadence. That's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service is accepting applications for its conservation stewardship program through March 22nd. Assistant State Conservationist with NRCS Brandon Bates said CSP helps take conservation efforts to the next level. It's initiating the producer to take steps to improve the condition of the land and help them meet their goals. Through CSP, we provide technical and financial assistance, of course, to help them take it to that next level. Some examples would be when you look at what CSP is, is that stewardship piece is already looking at what you're doing out there on the property. And for example, that you may be already implementing a cover crop on your property. What CSP is, we'll first give you credit for already doing your cover crop, but also what can we do to take it to the next level, whether that be incorporating a multi-species or a pollinator habitat. It's just, again, taking it to the next level. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announced two USDA investments to support the U.S. specialty crops industry. The Assisting Specialty Crop Exports Initiative, part of the Regional Agricultural Promotion Program, will provide $65 million over two years to enhance global exports and open new markets for specialty crops. Administered by the Foreign Agricultural Service, the initiative aims to address barriers unique to specialty crop exports, focusing on foreign food safety systems, export certification, and packaging requirements. The Specialty Crop Block Grant Program is allocated $72.9 million for innovative projects promoting the competitiveness of specialty crops including fruits, vegetables, nuts, and horticulture. These investments respond to challenges faced by specialty crop producers in domestic and international markets. Applications for specialty crop block grants are open until May 2nd. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is investing $207 million in renewable energy and domestic fertilizer projects to benefit farmers, ranchers, and agricultural producers. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack highlighted the initiative's goals to lower energy bills, create jobs, and enhance competition. The investments, supported by President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, include $157 million for 675 projects in 42 states through the Rural Energy for America program. These projects aim to expand access to renewable energy infrastructure and reduce energy costs for farmers. Additionally, $50 million is allocated to seven projects in seven states through the Fertilizer Production Expansion Program to increase domestic fertilizer production. The investments support long-term initiatives such as building automated fertilizer facilities and adopting alternative energy sources. The Innovative Feed Enhancement and Economic Development Act of 2023 is aimed at streamlining FDA approval for animal feed additives. 
Introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives back in December, the Innovative Feed Act aims to deregulate the approval process, fostering innovation by creating a new category called zoo-technical animal food substances. These substances act within the animal's gastrointestinal tract to reduce food pathogens, minimize byproducts, or influence gut microbiomes. The act clarifies that these substances will be regulated through the FDA's existing food additive petition process, expediting market approval. Supported by industry groups like the National Milk Producers Federation and American Feed Industry Association, the legislation has bipartisan backing and is poised to enhance regulatory efficiency for animal feed ingredients, benefiting farmers and promoting sustainability. The California chapter of the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers will be hosting the Outlook 2024 Agribusiness Conference at the Bakersfield Marriott at the Convention Center, March 19th through the 21st. The theme of Outlook 2024 is Sustainable Agriculture for the Future. March 19th will feature a one-day course on appraisals and a welcoming reception and young professionals networking event. March 20th will include information about updates to the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice, a Spring Ag Tour, and the California Classic Barbecue and Foundation Scholarship Auction. March 21st will feature the release of the 2024 Trends in Agricultural Land and Lease Values Report, along with presentations on the pistachio industry, water, solar, and an overall look at California's ag economy. More information about the conference is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. An easier way to make your farm loan payments. That's coming up on this line of ours. Farm loan borrowers will be able to make payments to their direct loans online. It's through the new Pay My Loan feature on Farmers.gov, which goes live in early February. Pay My Loan is part of a broader effort by USDA's Farm Service Agency to streamline its processes, especially for producers who may have limited time during the planting or harvest seasons to visit a local FSA office, as well as to modernize and improve customer service, provide additional customer self-service tools, and expand credit access to assist more producers. On average, local USDA service centers process more than 225,000 farm loan payments each year. Pay My Loan gives most borrowers an online repayment option and relieves them from needing to call, mail, or visit a service center to pay their loan installment. Farm loan payments can now be made at the borrower's convenience on their schedule and outside of FSA office hours. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. USDA is conducting a pilot program to determine if their well-known grades for beef products can be given by its graders remotely and in turn give some packing plants and processing facilities greater access to such services. Rod Bain looks at the recently announced remote beef grading pilot in this edition of Agriculture USA. The familiar USDA grades for beef at your local grocery store or retailer. Prime. Choice. Select. Graders from the Agriculture Department make the call on these marks. Now there is testing underway to explore possibilities of grading cuts and carcasses in a remote fashion. We're announcing what we refer to as the remote grading pilot. It's going to be available to any processing facility that does not currently have a full or part-time grading system in place. I'm Rod Bain. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack is among those joining us as we look at this new pilot program and what this may mean for small-sized meat processing facilities and for consumers in this edition of Agriculture USA. 
It is a familiar symbol to consumers at the meat counter of grocery stores and retail centers. USDA grade marks are used to communicate quality of products. In this particular case, we're talking about beef. You go to the grocery store, you see USDA Prime, USDA Choice. That is an indicator of what sort of eating experience that you should expect from that product. That nomenclature is used broadly, not just domestically, but overseas to communicate that up and down the value chain. Yet, as Jennifer Porter of USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service points out, what many customers may not realize is... This is a user fee service, so it is paid for by those facilities. Unlike federal inspection carried out by the Food Safety Inspection Service, grading is not required. So those graders that are there in those facilities, that service is paid for by the plant. So larger packing plants and processing facilities have economies of scale working for them to utilize this grading service. For smaller-sized operations, there are various challenges to bringing a grader on board. Because it's a user-fee-driven program, we also have to charge fees for smaller plants when they request grading service. In many cases, that's not on a regular eight-hour-a-day cadence. That's much more as the need arrives in an ad hoc manner. That is very often cost prohibitive for those operations. That led AMS to conduct a feasibility study in 2023 to find a more cost-effective grading approach for smaller size plants. And those facilities where having USDA graders on site was not economically feasible. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack discussed this study involving 20 participating facilities during this year's National Western Stock Show. We said, what if we train people to take really good photographs of the carcass so that people grading it could see what they would see if they were looking at the carcass in real time? And what if that grader was someplace else and had a few minutes in the day to look at that photograph and to make a determination of, well, that looks like it's prime, that looks like it's select. As a result of just a few minutes of a grader's time, used to go over product versus an eight-hour day. Instead of charging $114 an hour, you just simply said to the grader, how many minutes did you spend looking at that photograph, making that determination? And the grader will say, well, eight minutes. Well, that's a heck of a lot less than $114 an hour. That can be $15, $16 an hour. With that, the secretary announced a remote beef grading pilot program. Packing plants and processing facilities that currently do not have a full or part-time grading system in place are eligible for the pilot. Jennifer Porter says AMS will oversee the program, including continued education for plant employees. We start with an on-site visit. We help them understand what the grade requirements are, what proper carcass presentation looks like. We talk about the importance of lighting. We go over all those factors with the plant. Very often, we need to see some other factor of the carcass. We'll pick up the phone, call the plant, ask for some additional images, but it ultimately a grade is then assigned. And conduct further study and monitoring. How does this look for facilities that maybe operate at different scales? Are the technical components relevant? Are there ways that we can improve to make sure that the integrity of the grade mark is still intact? Resources for interested packers and processors are available at this web address www.ams.usda.gov slash services slash remote dash beef 
grading. Secretary Vilsack notes the importance of expanded access to grading services for smaller facilities to increase the value-added component of their products. It turns out that if you can put that choice label on it, you might be able to get $300 more for that carcass than you would otherwise get. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Many homeowners are unwittingly inviting raccoons to come into their homes and do damage. Gary Crawford has more. And now, in an effort to see how fast listeners can change radio stations, we present... Rocky, the rock and roll raccoon. He rocks his guitar, man, he's so cool. Oh, that is bad. That's the very definition of bad. Almost as bad as the millions of dollars of damage that's done to homes and lawns and gardens every year by raccoons. Plus, of course, they spread disease to pets and humans as well. One of the really important things when we're thinking about dealing with wildlife damage is how we may be contributing to the damage that, that we're having. Yes, we might be doing that. Kansas State University wildlife management expert Drew Ricketts says some of us unwittingly do things that say to the raccoons in the area, come on over, come to my house. One of those things is leaving food outside all day and night for our pets to nibble on. Then it's it's only natural that a raccoon is going to try and take advantage of that if, if they find it. So Ricketts says leave pet food out only for short periods of time, then take it away. Another invitation to raccoons to come to our place? Bird feeders. And if you're having raccoon problems and if you have a bird feeder in the yard and raccoons are, are eating that bird food, they're you're probably not going to get rid of your raccoon problem until you stop feeding the birds out there. Now, Ricketts says raccoons are not just looking for food. They'd like a nice, cozy home right there on our property. They love hollow trees and wood piles, open foundations under porches and tool sheds. And so the more we can limit things like that, the less chance of having problems with raccoons. We call this stuff habitat removal. Um, you're removing the food, cover, or water that that critter is taking advantage of and that, that, that's attracting them to the yard. Also, making sure that, that raccoons can't get into your trash by having your, your trash cans secure and good tight lids on them and that sort of thing. Rocky, the rock and roll raccoon. Following Drew's advice may help keep the rock and roll raccoons from holding their concerts at your house. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. Iowa corn farmers and ethanol producers celebrated the start of production of sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, at the Lanzajet Freedom Pines Fuels in Georgia. But a new study shows the state needs carbon capture and sequestration to reap the benefits from increased use of ethanol to jet SAF. A new study by Decision Innovation Solutions has found that fully maximizing the potential of the SAF production in Iowa will have a generational impact. The Iowa Renewable Fuels Association held a press call on the day that Lanzajet held its grand opening to introduce the study. The call starts with Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw. I'll just start off by saying congratulations to, to Lanzajet. Uh, they uh, held their grand opening today for the 
I think maybe first in the world, but I know it's the first uh, in the U.S. Um, ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel uh, facility. Um, they're kind enough to invite me to it. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a brand new facility. It looks good, 12 stories high, and uh, we're excited to see that production begin. And um, so, hats off to them. It's never easy being the first one, and it looks like they're off to a good start. Um, it also highlights that, you know, sustainable aviation fuel is here and now. We've seen it from other feedstocks, uh, particularly fats, oils, and greases, uh, and now we're seeing it from ethanol. And so that just uh, hits home the importance uh, of making sure that uh, Iowa and, and all of the U.S. ethanol uh, has a chance to, to be in that market. So to start that, we're going to uh, toss it off to Dan Keitzer uh, with Iowa Corn. He's a farmer, um, and he is also the chair of their Industrial Usage and Production Committee, I believe. If I messed any of that up, Dan, you can uh, correct me, but uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Marty. No, you're very correct. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying, you know, it was a true honor today to represent Iowa Corn Growers at the grand opening of the first ever, and I, you are correct, Marty, the way I took it, it is the first in the world ethanol to jet fuel facility here in Georgia. It was exciting to see this huge potential new market for corn ethanol come to reality. This could be the next aha moment for corn demand since the beginning of the ethanol boom of the 2000s. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack spoke at the grand opening, and he was very positive about the future of corn ethanol demand for the manufacturing of sustainable aviation fuel and the importance that it means to America's farmers. The airlines are very serious about decarbonization. They realize that sustainable aviation fuel, SAF for short, is their best path forward to meet their decarbonation goals. The plant that we saw today is an SAF production facility that utilizes ethanol as its feed source and is the first plant going into commercial production. The potential is big with a goal of 3 billion gallons annually of SAF produced in the United States by 2030. If corn-based ethanol could capture a half of this market, it would equate to an 850 million bushel of additional corn grind annually, which is a huge boost to the U.S. corn demand. Iowa and U.S. corn farmers continue to increase efficiency and sustainability. We continue to raise higher yields on less inputs. We are more immune to adverse weather events due to better genetics, complements of our seed suppliers, better crop production that allows us to better control diseases and other pests, and better nutrient use efficiencies allow us to put the right product on at the right rate, right time, and right place. As we raise higher corn yields, we are outproducing our domain base, and this is very important. Our carryover corn bushel from crop year 2022 to crop year 2023 is 60% higher. And in 2024, with trendline yields, we will continue to raise that. With higher carryover, we are experiencing lower prices at a time when many of our costs continue to rise. I believe Ryan Sauer will speak about this issue a little later in this meeting. The big concern to me as an Iowa corn grower is the fact that today our ethanol produced in, at Iowa plants does not have a low enough carbon intensity score, CI for short, to be utilized in SAF production. We drastically need to lower the CI score to assure that Iowa corn can compete for this new market. Ethanol CI scores can be lowered by several ways, but the biggest difference comes from the sequestering of the CO2 off the top of the plant and utilizing that in an industrial use or transporting it to a permanently be sequestered underground storage facility. 
it is paramount that we get our house in order and get the sequestered in place to allow Iowa's agriculture economy and overall economy to compete in this new market. Lastly, I would like to thank the Iowa Corn Grower members and checkoff contributors that allow us at Iowa Corn to work on creating new demand for our corn. We truly work every day with our Iowa Corn mission statement in mind, which is, and I quote, working for the long-term profitability of Iowa corn farmers. This is the AgNet NewsHour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more. Welcome back. We continue now with reaction to the opening of the world's first ever ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel facility is at Lanza Jet in Georgia. A great deal of ethanol comes from corn grown in Iowa, and the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association held a press call to discuss a new study by Decision Innovation Solutions that found that fully maximizing the potential of SAF production in Iowa will have a generational impact. We continue now with that call. Here is David Miller, the DIS chief economist and the author of the report. One of the things we get to is that we're we're looking at 12.6 billion gallons of new ethanol production. And when we look at that across the Midwest, we end up with uh, new ethanol production adding probably $25 billion uh, in construction. One, we got to build those plants. Uh, We modeled it as 63, 200 million gallon plants. It could be 100, 125 million gallon plants. We don't know the exact structure of exactly how those plants will be built. But the, the more recent plants that have been built have been up around that 200 million gallon capacity. So we modeled it as 63, 200 million gallon plants that would utilize that extra 5 billion bushels of corn and leave uh, actually a little bit of residual there for, if you will, error in the other demand. We're not going to short the other demands. We're not going to short feed demand, those kind of things. When we do that and you build that many ethanol plants, you end up with about $25.6 billion worth of new activity output from the construction activities alone. And that adds about $13.5 billion of GDP to the value-added aspects of the Midwest economy. There's about 139, 140,000 people involved in the construction of the new ethanol plants in the Midwest. And it's going to provide $9.5 billion in household income, labor type of returns. There's additional types of things that come from the SAF from E to J. There's another $12 billion that comes from just the construction of those ethanol to jet plants, converting that ethanol into SAF. Again, we modeled that as 30 uh, 30 plants that each would use 426 million gallons of ethanol. So we're using uh, a little more than two ethanol plants of uh, production per uh, E to J plant because we think they will have some higher levels of uh, scale efficiency. And, And so you end up with $12 billion coming out of that about $6.4 billion uh, in the construction uh, in terms of the uh, GDP uh, value-added activities, and another 65,000 jobs that come out of that with about $4.5 billion worth of labor income. But then you get to the operations part of it, and the operations part goes on year after year. Now, in our modeling, it builds, and what we've put in the report is what does it look like in 2050? 
what does it look like if we build out this system? And it looks like, you know, if you've got the ethanol plants uh, producing 12.6 billion gallons of ethanol in whatever plant configuration it is, and you've got the uh, uh, 5.9 uh, 5.59 billion gallons of SAF coming off those plants, we estimate that it adds about $56 billion a year in new additional output in the Midwest. That's about $15.7 billion of GDP enhancement uh, value-added activity that we're going to add value to the corn, add value to the activities from the ethanol side of it. Seven over $7 billion in new labor income and 184,000 jobs. Now the jobs include the direct and the indirect effects because it isn't just the jobs that come from new ethanol plants or the new uh, E to J plants. And in total, it's about 206,000 jobs between those two when you add them together. But that's the jobs that come from the corn farming, the jobs that come from the support, the trucking industries, the uh, manufacturing of the uh, and maintenance of equipment. It comes from, uh, and the uh, those are the indirect type costs, all the suppliers to the system. But then the induced costs are where do we spend all that money? Where do the people spend their household income? And they spend it locally. They spend it on hotels and cars and food and uh, medical care and spread across the whole uh, industry. And so we end up with a lot of uh, activity out there uh, that's going on uh, spread across, uh, really across the Midwest in a, in a, a, a very good uh, mix, if you will. It's not concentrated just within the ethanol production or the uh, E to J production sides of it. Um, we think we've done somewhat of a conservative analysis in terms of what the impacts might be at the farm level. Uh, because we because we modeled the use of ethanol to only use up the existing supply of corn and basically keep us at the same stocks to use ratio that we've had. And we used kind of the average price of the last uh, five years uh, as a price basis for this. We did not model in a big price increase into the feed industries or into other industries because of this. We don't think there will be if you're maintaining the stocks to use ratio that is relatively near where it is. Uh, and you get these impacts uh, without that. That again, David Miller, the author of the report on the potential effects of the new sustainable aviation fuel facility in Georgia. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgNetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the AgNet News Hour from AgNetWest. AgNetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.